You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today we're bringing you an episode from Law and Disorder, where we dive into the world of true crime stories with memorable cases that have lasting effects for law enforcement. On the last episode of Law and Disorder, we discussed the rather obscure discipline of forensic palynology, which is the study of pollen grains and other spores to prove or disprove a connection in criminal cases. While professional forensic palynologists are fairly few and far between, the practice has proven very useful in solving a number of cases, much like the case that we're going to discuss today. I'm going to give you a heads up. The case that we're discussing involves the murder of a young child, which can be disturbing to some listeners. If you're not up for that today, you're welcome to skip today's episode. We're going to be talking about the case of Baby Doe, who was a two-year-old child found on the coast of Deer Island in Boston, Massachusetts. Forensic palynology led to the first break in her case, which led investigators to both her identity and her killer. Fortunately, this case has been solved, but it's worthwhile to note the tragedy of that case that we are going to discuss. So to provide you with a quick recap from last time, forensic palynology uses the study of pollen to prove or disprove connections in a case, especially when connecting specific locations connected to a crime. Pollen can be such a useful tool for forensic investigations because of its durability. Pollen grains are essentially a plant's reproductive cell, and in order to further its species, that pollen has to survive the journey from one plant to another. But along the way, pollen grains will find themselves caught in the soil, or on our clothing, and in our hair, among other places. And if we're lucky enough to take some of that pollen home with us, it will remain in our hair, on our clothing, etc. for a very long time. Pollen grains are so durable that they can survive multiple cycles in a washing machine, so they will linger far longer than one may expect. But not only is pollen's durability important to its use in forensic investigations, the main benefit is pollen's regional nature. Certain types of plants are more prevalent in certain parts of the world, and each of these plants have their own unique types of pollen. I mentioned in the last episode that when a forensic palynologist is sent out to a crime scene, they will collect pollen samples from the scene and also collect images, or even pollen samples, from plants that are found nearby or around the scene. That way, if pollens are found at the crime scene and they match the ones that are nearby, we know that it's likely that the crime occurred in that area. However, if the samples were not a match, it's likely that there's another location that investigators would need to track down that may be part of the case. And it is also worth noting that while forensic palynology is a very useful tool in an investigator's arsenal, especially when the pool of leads is drying up and it comes time to think outside the box, it remains evidence that is not admissible in court, just like a polygraph examination. But just because something isn't admissible in court doesn't mean it lacks merit in an investigation. As you're going to see in this case that we're about to discuss, forensic palynology can help revive cases that have investigators stuck. On June 25th, 2015, a woman was walking her dog on Deer Island, right outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and she came across the body of a young, unidentified girl. The Boston Police Department was called to the scene, and they brought along cadaver dogs to search for additional remains, wondering whether this was a one-off incident or a killer's dumping ground. The only remains at the scene belonged to that of the young girl. She appeared to be around two years old at the time of her death, 
She had brown hair and brown eyes, and she had been dressed in white pants with black polka dots and wrapped in a garbage bag that contained a zebra print blanket. From the state of the body, investigators were unsure how long the child had been deceased, but they believed that her death could not have occurred long before she was discovered. There was nothing at the scene that could lead investigators to the girl's identity, so they decided to refer to her as Baby Doe until they could get a positive ID. Just as any other case where unidentified remains are found, there are a few questions at the front of investigators' minds. First, who is this victim and how can we identify them? Identifying a victim, especially a victim this young, can be done in a number of ways. Baby Doe's body was already experiencing some level of decomposition, beyond the point that a visual identification could really be made. During an autopsy, fingerprints of the deceased are often taken. However, considering the amount of decomposition and the moist environment in which the body remained until it was found, Baby Doe's fingerprints were of no help to investigators. DNA samples were taken, but a child this young isn't going to show up on any of the crime databases that we would have DNA stored, so it would really come up pretty fruitless. And the Boston Police Department called upon the aid of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, who were able to generate a digital composite of what Baby Doe would have looked like in life. It appeared that despite the state in which her body was found, she was otherwise healthy, with long brown hair, brown eyes, and pierced ears. Using the digital composite of Baby Doe and photos of her clothing, her blanket, and information about where she was found, the Boston PD erected billboards requesting help from the public for any information they have regarding her identity. And an ID is important, but there are other questions that investigators are considering when a body like Baby Doe's is found. Remember I mentioned that she was found near a body of water, wrapped in a garbage bag on the shore of Deer Island. When a body is found near water, investigators need to determine whether the body was dumped on the shore where it was eventually found, or if the body had been in the water and washed ashore. If it was in the water and washed ashore, that adds to a number of potential places where the actual murder could have taken place, which can mean the potential of involving additional law enforcement agencies and take a case that has the potential to be open and shut a lot more complicated. But answering this question about location is exactly where forensic palynology comes into play in this case. Deer Island is in Boston Harbor, which connects to the Charles and Mystic Rivers, and not to mention that Boston Harbor itself flows into the Massachusetts Bay, which is part of the Atlantic Ocean. There are a lot of different geographical locations along that coastline, which all come with their own unique topography, which means they come with their own unique plants. There was the potential that remains could have washed up from as far north as Canada, and pollen, remember, is very durable. It can survive multiple cycles in a washing machine, which means it can survive on fabric and even in hair that has been in the water, even if it has been in the water for a long time. So the Boston police again contacted the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and asked if pollen analysis of the evidence found at the scene would be possible. They felt that it was an integral next step in the case that would lead them closer to both the identity of Baby Doe and tracking down her killer. They understood that by knowing the origin of any pollen grains that were found on her clothing, they could narrow in on where the girl had been before her body was discovered on Deer Island. And from the state of Baby Doe's remains, law enforcement had theorized that the girl was local and her body was most likely placed in the exact spot where it was found, but analysis of any pollen found with her body and few belongings would confirm or debunk that theory fairly effectively, and they did not want to leave any stone unturned. 
So the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children contacted Andrew Lawrence, the head palynologist of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection at the time that this case was being investigated. He and his team performed the palynology in the case. And so his team vacuumed clothing samples from the case and did a chemical washing of the victim's hair to remove any pollen grains from it. From there, their true work began. It took them about two weeks to process the pollen that they collected in order to write a report of their findings, and their analysis concluded that the pollen grains found on Baby Doe's clothing, on her person, and the blanket that her body was wrapped in were local to the Boston area and its suburbs. Most of these pollen grains that they found came from privet hedges and cedar of Lebanon, which are not necessarily native plants to New England, but they're often planted in the suburbs, and that's where her body was found. So this pollen analysis helped to determine that Baby Doe was, in fact, a local child, which was a theory that investigators held from the beginning of the case. Additionally, on July 4th of 2015, Baby Doe was placed on the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, which included details about how and where her body was found. Press conferences were held where the child was found, urging the public to come forward with any information they may have about the identity of the child, or even the crime that took place. And when searching in missing persons databases, law enforcement had a feeling that the child they had found may have never been reporting missing at all. When searching in missing persons databases, law enforcement had a feeling that the child they may have found may never have been reported missing at all. And it gave legs to a theory that the child had potentially been killed by a member of their own family, or even that the child's remaining family had faced a similar demise to Baby Doe. All of these scenarios are incredibly chilling. And until Baby Doe was ultimately identified, over 200 potential identifications were ruled out in the case. Luckily, some of those 200 potential identifications were actually found alive and safe. But then, in September of 2015, Baby Doe was finally given a name, Bella Bond, a two-year-old girl from Dorchester, Massachusetts. It was one of her neighbors who gave the tip to investigators. The neighborhood noticed that while Bella's mother, Rochelle Bond, and her boyfriend, Michael McCarthy, had been around the neighborhood, Bella hadn't been with them, which, with Bella's very young age, would be quite odd. When the neighbor confronted the couple, they claimed that Bella had been taken away by the Department of Children and Families, essentially child welfare services. But with a call to the agency, that was quickly disproved. Additionally, the neighbor had noticed that Bond and McCarthy had gotten rid of a lot of children's toys in recent months. And with an unsettling feeling, the neighbor reached out to the authorities. On September 17th, a search warrant was executed at the home of Rochelle Bond, and she and McCarthy were arrested in connection to Bella's murder. Investigators did comment at the time of her arrest that Rochelle Bond had received two complaints of neglect toward Bella, but investigations into both of those complaints were closed with no charges filed. Ultimately, it was the mother's boyfriend, Michael McCarthy, who was charged with Bella's death, and her mother was charged as an accessory to the crime as investigators believed she assisted McCarthy in covering up Bella's death. McCarthy was found guilty of second-degree murder and charged with a life sentence, and he'll be eligible for parole in 2037. Bond received a plea deal where she would testify against McCarthy and then be credited with time served plus two years of probation. And this tragic case was finally closed, but unfortunately, it left large societal wounds behind. And while it may not have been the forensic palynology that was done in the case that truly brought justice to Bella Bond, 
it helped to point investigators in the right direction to both identify and name her killer. The deeper that you dive into investigatory techniques and some of these odd types of forensic science really helps to show that even the tiniest details in a case, including a grain of pollen, can help to move an investigation forward. So we hope that you've enjoyed our overview of forensic palynology. If you know of any other obscure areas of forensic science that you'd like to see us tackle in future episodes, let us know. You can actually email us at precinct444 at nleomf.org. And as always, you can find previous episodes of Law and Disorder and other Precinct 444 shows on our website, lawenforcementmuseum.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to thank Chris Mitchell for editing today's episode, and we can't wait to see you back at the precinct in 2024. Please subscribe to Precinct 444 on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to precinct444 at nleomf.org. You can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 East Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org and stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the precinct. Thank you.